Hi, this is Matt Bell, and this is what I have to live with. <laughs> he thinks pepper is spicy. <laughs> pepper is spicy, okay? I'm white. Uh, this is Portraits, the podcast, and this episode we're talking to Scott Gibbs, a painter from Dayton, Ohio. Uh, yep. <laughs> Next episode is going to be OhioCon 2020. It's... Uh, anime convention that takes place in January and I talk to a bunch of cosplayers and hear out their stories and then if you want you can like or subscribe to us on Facebook and Instagram at Portraits the Podcast and like every good podcast we have a Patreon if you want to give us some money to help fund our episodes if you don't need funding your podcast is obviously a failure (laughs) Here's Scott Gibbs. You had water on your hair right here, and I just now realized it's yeah. ink. That's so cool. Yeah. That's a profound realization, too. The superficial assessment of information. Um, we're we're going to get into that, too, perhaps. Go ahead and tell about your car accident. Pardon? Go ahead and tell the story about your car accident. So what happened was um, I was over on um, coming back from doing, I was working for a faux painting company for a couple of years. And that was before I worked over at the School of Advertising Art. And what ended up, do I need to speak louder? Or no, should I just do a glitch right there? No, um, I'm not going to be aware of that at all and just go. That's perfect. The old guy. So what you can do is entertain us for now. <laughs> There you go. There you go. But I'm better off with questions. Okay. Or, or I'll just go off on, on tangents. So um, what ended up happening, I'm driving, and we had left the school, so it's 5 o'clock, and we were at Troyer and Stroop. And I'm driving through the intersection. The light turns yellow. And I'm already, I, it turns yellow right when I see it. And a car took off to come to make the, the light. And I don't know how they didn't see me, but you know they didn't. But my mom had passed away two years earlier, and the, I heard a voice in my head, and it was remarkable because if you think about drunk drivers not getting hurt and stuff, that's kind of like what happens. They're the one that kills people, but nothing happens to them primarily. And um, my mother said, "Drunk drivers don't get hurt," just as, like she was sitting right there, and I just immediately relaxed. I surrendered to it, and where the window goes up that metal little slip, yeah. that stopped me from going out of the car. I just, head compression, you know, right up into that. But it was inertia, so the car gets hit. I don't move, but I go up. And I just got compressed into that and went right back into my seat. Didn't even know anything happened. I knew there was a hit. I saw the dust in the car. Um, but thank goodness my window wasn't down or, or it wasn't up because I would have just kissed that one. I remember a gentleman walking in front of the car, but nothing, that's it. And then all of a sudden I heard the metal of the door opening, and they were pulling the door open to get me out. I guess the car was steaming or something like that, and they didn't know if it was going to catch on fire. It didn't. There was no problem with it. And um, that's pretty much what happened. And I didn't know what was going on until the police officer started asking me, so when you hit the car, and I had to keep turning around to look at my car, to notice that my friend in wasn't hit. It was the side that was too pressed. 
but I kept saying, why do you keep asking me why I hit the car? And um, he just kept doing it. It was weird. But that, at that point, I was supposed to have met a student at my studio to teach them. And that's all I could think of. I'm supposed to be at my studio. I'm supposed to be at my studio. But that's all I can remember with that. Sites, so, I mean, it was pretty much sighted. Um, people started calling me, calling in because no one stopped. Cars just kept going. It was such a fat, but they it had to stop because of just the impact and the other car there. But people were calling in saying what happened okay. to the police officer, like going through dispatch. And so he basically was filling out through the report to the witnesses that were coming in. But I don't really remember anything from that point. Six months, I did make it to the studio that evening by the guy that hit me. So they left me at the site. There was no blood, and I said it was okay. But um, I walked over to the phone booth to call my sister. I was like, I have a sister. I can call her. Couldn't remember. I didn't know what the buttons were. Like, you're supposed to know what to do with those buttons. So I picked up the phone and put my finger to the buttons, and it's like, you're supposed to have information. That wasn't coming into my mind. So it really, um, it wasn't amnesia, but it was uh, diagnosed as a severe concussion. But that concussion, we didn't know till, so I go to the studio and I walked in, I knew I had missed my student, I was two hours late. And um, when I walked in, I saw, I had a six by nine foot painting on the wall or on an easel. And I saw the paint, I saw the painting, I go, that's mine, I'm the painter. And I picked up the paint and can and went to paint, put the brush right back in the can, and six months, it took me to understand what an artist was. Do I even, what's the point of an artist? Doctors I understand, engineers I understand, you know, people that have careers, but art wasn't registering. And I had to go back to the Lasco Caves and look at where art started, then I ended up hooking up to the Renaissance with Leonardo, Caravaggio, and Rembrandt. That's the rhythm that I found. Um, da Vinci innovated and found out how to depict space perceptually, when before you just saw what you saw, he kind of broke it down and ended up understanding that things in distance are blurry. So you have your fumata, um, and he was just an incredible engineer and analysis. I mean, he was into analysis. I hooked up with, so perceptual, psychological stuff. Um, Caravaggio was able to depict on a two-dimensional surface such reality with foreshortening and realism that was just shocking that that made sense. And then emotion was Rembrandt. So I had my psychological um, and, and atmospheric with Leonardo. I had my perspective in realism and convincing depth without an illusion on a two-dimensional surface of space. And then the tactility and the guts of Rembrandt with his forming gave me tangible tactile you know, sensations. So I was good to go from that point. So I studied that, I went to the library and got the biggest books on them that I could. Now this is through that time. But I really, I had a compulsion disorder. I didn't know how to stop anything, anything. 
So if I was eating, I would just clear, every, everything would be gone. Um, my wife had to start taking things away from me because it was like, you've had enough of the bag of potato chips. And I mean, I would go, we're talking everything off that thing, big double bags, you know, nope, nope, just one, thank you very much. And, um, and it was noticeable, I was getting a little girth. <laughs> it was coming on. But what ended up taking place from that is um, just, I, I wouldn't move. I would just sit on the couch and watch TV. She would have to tell me to go to bed. So I noticed there was a strangeness going. My neurologist and everybody thought I was normal because I'm quirky anyway. And they just saw the quirkiness. And I was. I was just as fun and, and enthusiastic and, and interested in things. But something wasn't right. I, I didn't know I didn't have a picture. So there's a, drawing, a set of drawings in, on the wall over here that in one, six months later on one day, I taught myself apparently how to draw from really crude assessment to a resolved drawing. And I thought I had done it over a period of time, but one of my assistants came three years later and was looking through my notebook. He goes, Scott, all these drawings are on the same day. And then my wife said, that particular day when you did those drawings, you started at 10 in the morning and you finished at 2 in the afternoon. So in that period of time, I taught myself how to see again in a way to assess the information, pull it over, and do something with it. And it's pretty, I was very intrigued by it. And I immediately started painting with that idea. But I knew something was wrong. Or I say wrong, but I'm not really sure wrong is appropriate. I just wasn't following the, the parameters that things do um, with how I am. I'm a conservative painter. So it's a rectangle or a square. It's a perfectly refined surface, and you paint on that. For people who are adventurous and want to build up surfaces, good for you. Um, I'm into a fundamental just classical painting. But what I found was my... Um, board that I painted on, when I went to frame it, had five sides. I wasn't even aware that you were supposed to have a standard. And I put the painting up in a restaurant, and it sold the night that I put it up by a collector, and it kind of ticked me off because I don't know who the collector is, and I, I don't have an image of the painting. Because I, I put it up, like, I finished it that afternoon and put it up, sold. Someone called up and said, you know, Scott, we have a liar here that wants to take your painting. Are you okay with that? And I was like, sure, you know, no problem. Um, forget. But the, um, I was able to do a, assess a portrait. I started seeing things in pieces. So when I look at you, you would say woman, and I would look at you and say man. But really, I found that I, something else was happening before that. And I knew it in New York and had played with it, but I didn't know that it actually is how the mind works or processes information. So really, there's a tension and then there's assessments. And at the end of those assessments, which are really multitudes, you come up with a conclusion. And I found out I can use that equation to see again. Not, I can't make a memory, but I can make a painting. So what I do is I don't see your face. And it's not a displacement or a, a Chuck Close, the, the painter, painter who does portraits back in the 60s and 70s, massive portraits, photorealism, hairs coming out of pores and crazy stuff. He can only see points in the face. He can never see the total face. And I thought that was phenomenal. But what I can't do is I can't take something and go to there. It, it's just, 
no matter how close I get the paper to you, if I move my eyes, I've lost the image. But what I can do is see shapes, and I can lock that shape. Okay, um, it looks like something's coming in and, and tapering in. I can say that, and then do lines coming in and tapering, but I'll have to look back and forth to see if it's the same. And I can do little teeny pieces of modification. But generally, it's the shape, um, uh, shape maybe, um, maybe a shape. And I can do all those pieces, and then a portrait appears. And I think that's totally cool. So that's how everything de um, develops when I paint. But I don't, <clears throat> painting prior to that, I was painting purely autonomously. And in New York, I realized that if I wrote, my writing can set up the whole picture plan for me. I don't have to think of a picture. I don't have to think of anything except I don't know what to paint. And if I write that, I don't know what to paint. I can already see a configuration of lines. And I just keep writing and keep writing. Usually something profound. But it could be simply as profound as I don't know what to paint. Oh, look, there's something there now. And what is there now? A configuration of lines. Um, but those lines are creating shapes. And those shapes are unknown, but they're new. And I can start talking about it. It's almost too delayed. When I'm doing it, it's fast processing. And um, that's remarkably relieving to me. So I produce paintings by um, using known text typically religious, things that are, I find the most misused or misinterpreted, or used in ways to manipulate vulnerable minds or susceptible minds. So politics is equal to me. I mean, I look at them both as methods of using language to convey information, usually to motivate people. And if I hear a language that makes me motivated, all my yellow flags go up immediately. It's like. Oh, why is someone trying to get me to do something other than what I'm doing? So I'm, I'm, I'm in gear all the time for that. I'm not suspicious or paranoid, but I listen really yeah. carefully and, and want to get into it. Is that good for the car accident? Can you hear that buzz? Oh, yes, yes, yes. But the, so you, do, I'm, I'm, whatever you would like me to do, I'm good to go. Uh, you want to start with the drawings you were talking about? We can. And then we can work our way through. Sure. So this is going to be, this, with the drawings, that's going to be a, um, the stage will be, the accident is the beginning, but it's not the beginning of the show. So what we're going to take a look at here are, I was going to go over to the studio and get another set of drawings that I thought would have been, it's a painting in process. And then bad, I mean, we're talking scary, bad, bad, and then is that the same painting? It just jumps. So on that particular time, what a great idea, barefoot. I'm much better barefoot. So this is, so I have a, a Caravaggio book open and this is my first assessment. 
I, I don't see this formula. I just say, oh, there's, I'm drawing the, th at this point, I'm, I'm making words and I've already made up the story, but in real time, what I believe happened was, I saw that there was distinct things that had my interest. Mm -hmm. And so I drew them out with lines. So everything was drawn with a, a contour line. And then I came in and just put attention to it. So there's one line quality. Then I said, oh, that looks pretty cool, but there's some things that are missing. Not that they're missing here, but, oh, I, I see some stuff now. And I drew the next one. You would think I would have gone back to the same drawing, but I, yeah. I just jumped. Um, so I did the next one, but now I've got more attention. I'm starting to see more subtleties, and I'm starting to change the tones. Here, there's something happening, but here I'm using it deliberately. So I've got some gradation, perhaps, and a little bit more detail. There are shapes, and I am seeing that there's things happening, but I'm, I'm still not aware that I'm rendering something. And these lines, I thought, were just kind of beautiful. And I'm not a portrait painter. Realism to me is just a disdainful thing. People do it and they're good, rock and roll. I am, that's why I'm an abstractionist. So what I did here, I switched to the next one and put more attention to it, changed even the dynamics. It's a three-quarter profile still, but subtleties and a little bit strength in here too. A little bit more tenderness with the lines maybe. Mm. And then I was like, you know what, I feel something. Let's go to something more sentimental, apparently. So I've gone from Caravaggio, Caravaggio da Vinci, back to Caravaggio. A um, little bit more sentiment. There was a child, I'm sure, in her hands, but I didn't want to go that route. When you, mm, mm, mm. And apparently I just stopped at that point. And then I started another drawing, looking at, I don't know if I even looked back, this is the last drawing. So it's one, two, three, four, five. Apparently I've gathered enough information to where now I've noticed that the pen doesn't have to draw heavy. You can drag it and it gives a soft line. And these are blown up probably a third bigger than what they actually are. But um, the subtleties, it became a lot more depicted of a sentiment and the face started appearing. These are faces, but they're, in my eyes now, rather illustrative. But this one started to get space in it. Mm. So I'm sensing something about Leonardo. I'm, I don't have the fumata in, but I do have subtlety of line train or shape transference here, or, or surf the transfer of something to something, transition. This shocked me. I was so confident at that moment, I remember I immediately went over and started drawing something with the letters and I had underestimated. I thought it was easy and once I started drawing, it just, the drawing collapsed. I realized that you had to have thoughts where you're going and that's where I figured out I can't see my thinking anymore. And before that, I was a ticker tape. I used to think, oh my God, if I could see all the thoughts in my head, but if I stopped to look at all my thoughts, my thoughts would still be going and I wouldn't be attentive to those. So I stopped that thinking. No more ticker tape thinking. Just live with it. There we go. I only sleep like three to four hours a night, if. And I do more often, I've learned how to shut my body down because I'm just not going to go to sleep.
you know, but I have to let my body rest and my, you know, hopefully brain. So that's pretty much where we came from that. Um, from this point, oh, I jumped. I, did, I do have a, um, a secondary depiction, I'm sorry, a secondary depiction right here. So this is what I did with paint. So I found this in the studio. And um, when I was painting this one, I ended up doing it in space. So I do this really intense glazing technique, which will be apparent when we go over here to these paintings. But um, I do 11 layers of the glazing. So I'll paint white, rub black, and rub it all off. Then I'll go back and paint white again, rub paint, rub paint. And what comes out from this is kind of exciting. I can keep up. That's what I can produce right there. Oh, that's beautiful. <clears throat> so now I've got um, this method. Instead of just doing shapes, I can now do shapes in space. And this is where I wish I had those three drawings um, with me. I, I won't keep recreating that, but I do know that there's a beautiful connection. This is probably 7 to 11 layers deep. No gray, no rendering at all. The only thing I'm doing is painting white and rubbing black over it. Paint white, black. So even the hair, I'm doing brush strokes, white, rub black to create that, that development going through there. And then to show another manifestation would be this one here. Now the whole time, I'm not using traditional painting techniques. I innovate because I'm a hack, basically. Mm -hmm. I don't know, I've never been to school to learn how to paint. Um, and I just admire what artists have done with paint, but that's usually an academic platform that then comes you know, through experience and just the art of practice. But this is on a door, and you have to touch it. It's really stunning. There's no paint on it. And so the striations of the wood, I had to end up again creating, how can I do a wet painting on wood surface without the paint running into the wood? Because it's, it's just a wet technique. So um, it became rather tedious. You take off about 90% of the brush and rub. People might call it a dry brush technique, but it's, it's, it's not that simple. So where you do feel any type of paint, really what's happening, this is a trip, you might want to feel this. And it feels like the paint's actually going in. It where does. Face is. And that's mm. the most accumulation, and yet even your hand makes it feel as if it's going opposite. I don't do illusions, but apparently I paint them. <laughs> so. Everything I do kind of, well, most likely things that I do deprive you of understanding the superficial assessment. So that superficial assessment is um, what I feel is the general condition of humanity. They assess superficially, gather information to solidify it, and then kind of bank on it. But there is a history that I'm more interested in, in what's down here, not what we have up here. So then, to investigate paintings that way. It's how a painting comes in to be, not what the final product is. The final product just means I'm done. You know, I'm interested in doing it. I mean, that to me is the whole thing. But here I brought in the fumata. I let Leonardo, you know, dictate the day, and I bowed to him in the most reverential way. 
But the shocking part to me in just the history of this painting is every, all of this stuff was bright white. And I just keep rubbing and rubbing and rubbing. And that's why you get no paint, because it's all just a very aggressive painting technique. And if it's small and detailed, it just means I'm really tight, you know, where, where I'm doing the aggression. I don't do anything calm. Even when I'm doing a, a brush, it's to shock the surface. And hopefully, you know, that comes about with something. So if you'd like, we can kind of, this is the beginning of me painting, but I still don't know how to paint. I'm following what other, I have to go to the masters. I, I can't, I mean, I worked for some really powerful people in New York, um, Julian Schnabel, um, as a, in the studio assistant. Um, I worked with the painter George Kondo, who's just a mind-blowing, phenomenal painter. Um, and to work with him personally was probably the biggest asset to me understanding art and the appreciation of somebody doing something so, what seemed so carefree and effortless. But the knowledge that was going into that it was daunting, you know, and it really should, it put me in check for me to assume anything about what was being painted. So my evaluation and my um, appreciation and my mm, authentic need to look at the higher end of what art is kind of matched to what I think science does, you know, at a, a very professional field. So these paintings here are the Kabuki series. And the Kabuki paintings, what I did was, um, I'm going to disappear for a second and be right, don't okay. you move. faster. <laughs> so these are the Osaka prints. And I've, oh, I just, you know, I just love imagery. So I found these pictures, which I've always loved. I've seen them in art museums and things like this. And aren't they just captivating? <clears throat> so with this, what I found was, wow, it's, I, 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 I want to do something about this. They're so lovely that, um, I decided to use the trick with my mind with this. Since I can't see anything, I can take a piece, take a pattern, and draw one element of the pattern. But I'm kind of uh, self-indulgent when I say I'm clever. Um, I like to mix and match and play with things. So these are all, all of these images are what make these. These are my interpretations of what's on that page but I get to use some things. So what happened with my art up to the accident was I'm a, um, a deprivational painter. I deprive myself of all my skills. So I'm technically proficient in perspective, volume, light sourcing, and that type of thing. But for me to paint genuinely, I felt that I had to get rid of everything I was comfortable with. So remove all those tools and go into just flat painting. Well, on here, I don't have any discriminators anymore, so I had to throw in perspective, and I had to throw in volume and throw in a light source. So I took them from a flat wood block and used all my technical abilities and just pumped them up. And they are rather captivating, if I do say so myself. Um, but it's just, I, I cannot believe I can, um, I enjoy the process of constructing it at the end is when I see it, and I'm like, you know, I really think that's quite cool. I'm probably the most self 
self-indulgent, conceited, self-centered, self-authenticating ass, you know, on the planet as far as the painter goes, but, but I don't have the ego to support it. So I'm just really an enthusiast for the image. I just happen to have been the one that painted it. So beware how you interpret that because I already designated everything I am. Did I say an ego, self-centered <laughs> jerk? <laughs> um, but that's okay. It's like a leaf on a tree in fall. Um, but these are all my depictions of, of those for the most part. I've got a seven-foot one at the studio that's pretty sweet. Um, these are really cool because I got away from the kabuki, but then I saw a beautiful um, thing on the Science Channel or on National Geographic where uh, an astrophysicist said something that caught my attention. She goes, the most favorite thing that I've ever seen is called a alignment alpha blob. And I couldn't believe I heard the word blob <laughs> from an astrophysicist. And I was like, what? I, I turned over and looked, and I got a couple of clips before you know, it went on to another segment. But these are the largest things measurable in the universe. 200 million light years across. So our Milky Way galaxy kind of sits over into that little pot of teeny little dots. Um, but I thought it would be kind of elegant to paint the largest thing in the universe on one of my smallest paintings. So I did a series of them. These are all <laughs> alpha blobs. <laughs> and it's cool because the depth, the illusion of the depth that's on these, which is really quite lovely, is as thick as that white line right there. That's as thick as the painting is. So I love that type of um, magic in painting that you can create such... It's really not illusion at the point. I'm not trying to captivate or convince the viewer of seeing anything. That's me trying to show space to me and trying to feel it. Like oh, a little bit too much here, less here. How do I have to bend this here? How do I do a dissipation of size? It gets smaller as it gets further away type thing. I'm always in that very primary process of how to make a picture. Yeah, that's those. And this would be an element at the beginning. So these are the very... I was dealing with an issue where I was looking at the idea, again, of femininity and masculinity and man and woman, and really primary. I was probably into more anthropology at the time and philosophy, and I, the Mediterranean, the um, Hellenistic art movement, uh, the Greeks, early Greeks and stuff, very early figurines of fertility and, and womanhood, where um, it would be just the breast and the belly. It would be stubs for the arm and just a little nub for the head and maybe large thighs, but everything that had to do with like nutrient fertility. Um, I started looking back at that and I thought the word, and I'm pretty savvy with religion, so I know when the masculinity role played over as far as conveying proper information. Um, but what I was looking at is the word goddess um, implied a masculinity first. Mm. So I re removed that and titled them hyphen ESS paintings. So they're just called S's. <laughs> and the first people that did the title were putting S's on it. I said, no, 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 it's hyphen ESS. Well, what's the hyphen for? Well, I don't know why a goddess would have to have a masculinity to perform its power. So I just went straight to um, and then this configuration was a face. I was trying to structure a face without any reference to how it had been done before. And I couldn't really do anything other than make a composition that had a, a centralized image 
but I, I, this is too far advanced or quirky and more of a symbolic thing. But this one here and these here are the S paintings. They're the very first ones, and apparently I created a structure that was familiar enough that it actually set me up to do the kabukis. I was like, oh, you know what? I can do that with these. <gasps> yeah. And um, this is one of the 11 layer ones. So if you were to hold a pretty powerful light to this and take a magnifying glass or just look close, I have to put glasses on at this point, you'll see shadows cast off every bit of this painting onto the surface under it. So they're about an eyelash thick once you get to it. So if we had it here and moved it, you'd literally see the shadow under the shape move. Yeah, I, and I think that has a lot to do with my childhood fascination with Viewmasters. How you can see the plane of image on that cellophane. Totally. Um, and then I'm a total enthusiast for Disney animation, and that's another animation cell. So I'm really producing that fascination of cell activity and that beauty of seeing those things, but in painting. So I, I'm not inventing anything new. I'm so entrenched in my own life and my own history that my fascination with anything can just be a captivated subject to, you know, to paint. Not that my life's any different than anybody else's, but um, I tend to be enthusiastic about everything. I mean, I love doing dishes. I like mowing the grass. I'm, you know, two times straight on the grass, the third time I'm digging, you know? And then I wonder what it looks like from an airplane and I'm kind of like making patterns, you know? Do I want to do Buddha sitting or just flip them off? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe Buddhists should flip them up. It's a transitional position of the hands. You know. <laughs> this one's painted on the front of K-12. Um, and it's 40 feet high. Yeah. If you go out in front of the building here. It's really quite... Did you come in that way? No, we came in from, from the right highway? there. So if we were to go outside, you could see this thing just... It's pretty, I compressed it and stretched it. So it doesn't matter to me if it's small or large. The, the, the game is the same, it's just you know, more effort. And I like painting large because it lets me be in the space of the image versus always wrist and hand. This just happens to be convenient. And I was trying to stay low on the, the sky. I mean, my studio fills up too fast with big paintings. I don't mind that, but these I can carry around with me. If I get in a traffic delay and I've got paintings in the car, I just pull one out. 45 minutes sounds sweet to me. And um, I'm painting you know, a little bit of a cup of water, a little paint press, a little dibbling, and then keep looking up. Once the horn honks, I know I have to put it away and <laughs> clean the brush from my mouth. Do a bench man, go clean, get some toxicity in there. Um, so from this point, um, we, again, since we started out with the practice, I started exercising stuff about the text again. So here I'm writing, going right back into the writing. Um, here you can see it, but the, the, the writing really disappears fast. It's only meant for the structure. I'm investigating negative space. So the writing is just for me to get to these spaces. And what I do now is I compress. Everything's compressed. So these black lines are thick, thicker than that and I use the negative space to shape my lines up. So everything's compression on all these. And to get a dark line, I don't paint dark lines, I use the light to come in to create a dark line, and vice versa. You know, if I had a, a white painting, I guess it would be dark lines. So I'm very interested in those, those lines in there that are created for me painting the positive negatives. 
So my negative becomes positive, and it, it just keeps recycling itself through the work. And this here is when I've started to get into the word frames, and I've decided that a frame for a painting, for me, I kept spending exorbitant amounts of money for frames, and they never looked what I wanted. You just said frame. But what I did is I ended up, I had an idea of painting these thick and layered, but I went down to Cincinnati and my wife's um, brother-in-law, I guess my brother-in-law, um, he just got a brand new tool, a, jigs a jigsaw or something like that. Mm -hmm. And um, he goes, well, if you want to cut it out, let's go out in the garage. So I think there was a Cincinnati Bengals. They were in the playoffs with Pittsburgh or something like that. We spent the whole day in the garage, grinding everything down. And we did the first word frame, three layers thick, set it up on a painting that they had received from me the year before. And they have the first word frame painting. But it, it immediately vibrated the essence of the painting. Mm -hmm. And I cannot design a better frame, you know, than that. I tend to not frame at all. I don't want anything coming in. To me, I feel the painting is what's important, not how you contain it. Mm -hmm. So if I can't contain a painting compositionally, then I'm not worth my beans as far as I'm not a painter. So it's either or, you know, going on that end. From this point, I um, started, I'm not sure, I, I was convinced I was making good paintings, but I wasn't convinced um, I was satisfied yet. It's, it's almost like a doodle incarnate when I get into these things. Um, I say doodling because I'm enthusiastic, I'm in the rhythm of it, but there, there's nothing about mindlessness going into this. It's pure intent of what the shape is, how I'm doing it, and what's happening. And I, even though I'm doing the white shape, when the black shape appears, the line, that, that just, it blows my mind. Or dark shapes to get white lines. But I started seeing I was painting flat. Nothing was happening. So here, I did this painting here first, but it was done like those S paintings. It is an S painting. There's just shapes. You can see just components. And you can tell it's after the car accident because back here is an original painting. But it was black and white, I believe. And I painted these shapes onto it. And I hung it and I thought the painting looked weak. It was in a show. And I took the painting home. The opening wasn't until the next day. I took the painting home that night and just, um, okay, I'm gonna have to drag you somewhere because I found a secret. And I, I know that when things are disregarded or seen as not right, we tend to judge it. I tend to see something that's not right as not being, um, I see it as new. And new, people tend to avoid because they're not familiar with it. They don't know what it is. You want to go back to things that are more traditional and regular. So it's just a natural habit that you would want to go to something more common and knowing than go to something unknown and for whatever reason that might be. So I'm going to show you an aspect of the painting over here. I did this painting um, with a, a, a friend for, um, I did the painting and my friend Josh and, and Brent own it. It's big, it's 16 inches tall, and I tried to reproduce this exactly. So when I started painting it, what I found was um, 
things were the soul, the painting was gone. It would look great big, but I wasn't able to capture certain qualities of the painting. And what I realized was, this is a small painting. There's the intimate worlds with the how the medium works on the surface, and all this residue. This stuff here is what it was, and I thought that stopped me from producing this painting large. If I mimicked that, it would be just ridiculous to mimic such a natural technique. But I had this painting that had shapes that I didn't know what to do. It didn't look strong enough. So what I did was, I figured out, okay, what I've done, how did I do that? Um, apparently, I put paint on, and then there's water up here that I put, and it's cut through that paint to where the darkness had, you know, dried in some areas, but it removed it in the wet areas. And then it happened here again. And I looked close at that. And what I noticed was, this is very distinct as childhood, where you look at mud puddles. Um, little, or after the rain's fallen, those little teeny mud puddles that you look down and you see those little caverns and rivulets going through it like little canyons. Mm -hmm. Bam, right back to childhood again. Things that are just magical. I said, ballad. So I took that technique, didn't know how to do it yet. <laughs> so I painted some canvases white, or boards white, and produced this. So I said, I can paint shapes. One color, put the, let it dry thoroughly, put the next color on it at a certain viscosity, certain type of thickness, or I needed it to hold, not wash off with the water. But if I misted, I could create a slow, not a cascade, but the, rip, the little beads of water would start to accumulate, gain speed, and slowly cut through this. It takes about 40 minutes per shape. But that gave me the ability, I didn't even finish the painting, I think I just did these black on white parts. I came over to this painting, and just did the whole thing like that. I did a, a wash on the whole painting first, and then I went to each section, repainted them, and did it only in those areas. So what happened was, um, I'd have to paint on the shape, spray the water, catch everything that exploded up here with a dry sable brush, and everything that came down just went, you know, messy everywhere. I had to perpetually clean that and clean it to where it didn't show up anywhere else in the painting except here. So I did that with every shape. The next morning, it was done. I was blown away by it. I hung it up in the show, and I could sit at the lounge and just stare up at the painting and say, that's me. <laughs> and then I just ended up getting addicted to it. So I ended up formulating a whole, again, it's another innovation. Is this one rotated when you did? I had to build a, a 12 foot easel <laughs> with an axle in the middle so my painting would be able to rotate That's 360. So, so what you have is you, so this painting's, you know, I'm standing still while I'm changing the position of the painting. The mastery for me, the, the final coup de grace, if I may, is this technique here. I can produce a radial. So the radial is the hardest thing to get. Because it reminds you of like one of those carnival paintings where you're spinning, but that is not, it, it, 
it denies people understanding how I painted it. They think it's fun, they think it's running paint, they think it's everything, but actually what looks like the runs is actually where there's no paint. That's the water cascading through it. So you're seeing it in opposite. But you're convinced it's what you see. So they think it's decals, they think it's cut out collage, they think it's just unmasking and taping and it's all freehand. There's no, there's no tape, no nothing. Um, it's just labor intensive. So a lot of my techniques um, only look the way they do because they're so labor intensive that most people just wouldn't put the time to it. You know, necessarily. But on these, what I have to do is I have to do these in two inch sections. So I'm rotating that canvas just that much in order to be able to get that. And at the end, you see it. The whole time you're doing it, oh, boring. Um, not boring, just like, oh my God, is this ever gonna end and what's it gonna look like when I'm done? Mm -hmm. So I don't even get to know it until it's done. Mm -hmm. But I did have some drawing. And here I've got a whole sequence. I've got the negative space from a text painting. So the letters are everywhere, but I've seen these shapes inside there. And then I've apparently studied that and started to get into some 3D shapes here, come to here, found out about using a grid, and here I'm using the grid behind these images that are compressed now, and this ends up being the drawing to that painting over there. So it's nice when I can see a fully developmental process, but this is, this is my mind right here. I have no memory of any of this stuff, so it's beautiful that I, I actually draw and take notes in such a sequential mm -hmm. development. So again, there's the S painting. So the S painting is still the catalyst for this whole thing. That's an S painting. We saw that one over there. That's just a photocopy, but there's the drawing for it. And um, this is the first image I did from the car accident. So it is, it says 07 down here, but that's this one. It's not when this one here was drawn. I was in Columbus trying to draw a picture and I just couldn't, I couldn't pull it off. So I started writing again. And that writing ended up producing negative space. And when we go into the next body of work, you're going to see that incarnate. I mean, it's just googling I mean, to me. So I'm in a pause moment, so or just in my head. So I need you guys to guide me what you want me to do, because everything is just a cascade of stuff to me. It's true. The next landfall, but will it be? Uh, you want to jump to the. The beginning of everything? Yes. Okay. That's where we are right there. So. Does this walk through mm -hmm. as the, from beginning to sure. end? These paintings here, <clears throat> um, not these down here at the bottom, but these pieces here have to do with me first assessing that um, formula that I was looking at for that. <clears throat> I used to think that I was seeing energy on everything. Um, but what I realized was it was um, unsettled information. So if I was seeing somebody, I would think that I'm picking up a lot of energy, but it was really all the stuff that I wasn't paying attention to because I was just saying woman. But really there's so much captivating elements and so much stuff going on there, you know. Um, eyelashes, personality, distance that we're standing in. There was just so much stuff that wasn't being tended to by me that I start picking that up. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's not necessarily tangible, but I just saw even street corners or even people standing in a subway. They weren't important anymore. It was the stuff that was happening all around them. And I'm not one to go to the whole, you know, aura, um, cosmic, molecular, you know, vibrational type thing. That's all clever talk to me. That's great. And it's not that I'm saying I deny it. It's just that I'm not interested in that. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in something more, again, Dayton talk, tangible, grounded type things. And I'm not saying Dayton as a derogatory term. If I was living in Toledo, it would be Toledo talk, you know, or, or whatever the case is. So these, I would do the image um, geometrically or just set up the gig, paint it straightforward, and then I would come in and activate it. Um, so I was aware that I was, as a painter, I wanted to catch activation. So I was very savvy. Uh, I, uh, I, I, I don't mean to be that confident. I was very aware of my attention to um, Andy Warhol, Robert Rauschenberg, um, Jasper Johns, the game of the day when I was in New York in the 80s. And what I saw, new paintings were interesting to me, you know, Basquiat and Keith Haring and all those people, but that was already commercial and acceptable. I was more into my experience. And what I found, and they were an experience too, I mean, it was captivating at that time, but um, I was aware that if Andy Warhol took his Campbell soup can and Coke bottle and really focused his attention on something so beautiful to him in his life, his mother making him lunch with Campbell soup and you know having a Coke, um, what I thought was my most important things were my blue jeans. So what was I going to be able to do with my blue jeans? Well, my blue jeans were my favorite thing, but the most beautiful thing in my studio was that darn off-can on the windowsill. I loved the blue, the orange, the design of the graphics. And again, I don't need to see off and think, you know, toxic insect repellent. I just saw a beautiful image. So I thought, I'm going to paint that image on top of my favorite pants. And I like my socks, too. So it's socks and pants all the way. But then I noticed all the sand that was on here. I know I took a trip out to Long Island one night, probably about 2 in the morning, and on the way back in, the sun was coming up. But I went out to the Hamptons, got off a, a, just a stop in the middle of nowhere, and um, walked out to the beach, got a bucket of sand, walked back on the train, got, waited for the train, well, had to wait for the train to come back. Train came back in. Some business people were on it <laughs> with my bucket of sand. Went back into the city with the sunset, uh, or sunrise. Did the painting, thought it was pretty cool. I was digging Marlboros at the time. Another favorite shirt, splat. And when I want to get really rogue and kind of act like the artist that I wasn't, but I can certainly perform it, I had a beret and a, you know, cigarettes couldn't have filters at the turn of the century, so I went with Lucky Strike and did my winter shirt on that one. And uh, then felt like, what am I going to do is just start doing products and paintings on clothes. And I was like, well, you know, I'm going to start using all my clothes. Um, so I shut it down um, just because I was getting too much into a niche. And, and getting too known to myself. And I really wasn't interested in making, I wasn't known, and I didn't have to make a product or create a style for people to buy my work, so I just jumped. And what I realized was Picasso fascinated me. And I, like anybody, you're gonna like Picasso, then you're gonna learn to hate him and you know, depreciate him, and then no matter what, he's just gonna come back because it's Picasso. I mean, he's even just a term, and the concept is bigger than his name. But what I did was went right back to innovation again, prepared a canvas to take a pen. 
And I thought my most favorite thing really was drawing and writing. My profession was a pen. I was a technical illustrator for the Defense Department for Wright Pat. And I used to draw, um, I did their flight, I was the illustrator for the flight manuals. So I was doing military breakdowns of aircraft and satellites and schematics for buildings and things like that. So I decided, instead of using a technical pen, to go to a big pen. And I was aware at that time how to, I was aware of meditation, mantras, and ways to um, prayer and how to shut the mind down. And if you don't sleep for two or three days and you consciously use that tool, weird stuff happens. Drugs can't touch this place. So, and plus drugs are temporary. Like, get a ticket and then the ride's over. I can go into this place and feel good when I just get a night's sleep the next day. But what I felt when I was in these states was if I just started tapping the painting with the pins, but making marks, both hands. It started out with one hand and I realized that was too normal. And I wanted to get both sides of the brain working. Not left side, right side, just not something dead. And I was aware of it. So I started marking. And what happened when I started marking is um, a subliminal image would come up. That was intriguing because the subliminal image that came up happened to be this painter named Fragonar, Henri, a French painter with portraits. It would have been in the books. Um, so this portrait popped up in my head and I just kept going and it turned up. Again, I'm not into anatomy. You can, it's pure uh, apparent that I'm not. But two more faces popped up. Started another painting right in the middle. And here come these images again. And it ended up being a man at the, Metro, at the Modern Museum of Art staring at a Matisse painting. And I was looking at the boy watching him look at the painting. And the one half signified that I'm the viewer seeing this. But what I thought was amazing is that these things are coming out of my head and it's all anatomical. These faces, those blew my mind. The position of the body, this kind of leaning back, this anatomical study, I don't know that stuff, but apparently it's in me. And that was very, that no sleep deprivation stuff was letting these things come out and not letting me be convinced of what I know or don't know. So I kept going with it. I brought in some religious subjects. So this is St. Sebastian, no arrows. I just wanted the persecution of humanity. Then it started to be studies, mystical people, um, or just heads looking down and reading. Um, again, got stuck in a niche, started saying, you know, I got the energy, I'm getting the feeling, but I'm not doing anything that's me. Yeah, it's my subconscious and it's imagery coming out of my head, but it's almost too contemporary. I thought I was getting kind of stuck in being an artist and I was losing me. I was becoming something. So I went back and searched again for something about me and what I thought was martial arts was really important. Mm -hmm. So I started trying to do a mark that depicted a martial arts movement. So like, you know, there's a bunch of different styles, a bunch of different moves. There's almost like little sequences that are like dances called katas and pinions. And, um, and there's other things, but I did it. Then I washed it all off, did it again, washed it all off. They look pretty cool. Kind of like this, you know, some art that was going on in the day, Cy Twombly, 
very formidable painter, be careful. Anytime I did anything like another painter, I backed out. Because I saw that I was being seduced, you know, in my own seduction of them. So I just shut it down again. And at this point, went back to Picasso and pretty much said, you know what, I'm just going to be doing, this is it. I might as well go back to Madison Avenue. I'm a good designer. I can work for an advertising company and, uh, or a design company. Um, that's what I went there doing. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to do something. I heard about Eric Clapton locking himself in the bathroom because he was the best musician in London at the time, but he couldn't read or write music. And I thought I had a valid idea in my head about what I wanted to be, but I just didn't know what to put it on. You know, energy sounded good. But energy for energy's sake, you know, you can watch a volcano and call it a day. I mean, how are you going to match the energy of a volcano, perhaps, you know, as a, an abstract thought outside of oneself, but, or tornado for that fact, or for that matter. Um, I decided I was going to do what he did. He locked himself in the bathroom for three days and three nights with a half a gallon of milk and a carton of cigarettes and said he would not come out unless he could write and read music. So he went in with the dummies guide, you know, or how to read and write basics. And because um, he was being fired from every band, he was in all the best bands and getting fired because when they went to record, they had to start making music. Well, he couldn't contribute. He could, he could hear anything anybody else said and then play it better than them by inventing and inserting different um, structures in the, in the music, perhaps. And I, I don't have a, a language lingo, so forgive me for that one. But, but um, so he locked himself up, and he came out, and you got Eric Clapton. So I figured, well, I'm not looking to be Eric Clapton or that notoriety, but I'm going to go for it. So I called up my dad in Virginia and said, Dad, I'd like to come down and lock myself up in the garage for three days and three nights. And he's like, well, what's the matter? And I said, well, nothing. And I will not be hanging from the rafters. <laughs> this is a straight gig, no drugs, no alcohol. I'm not depressed, but I do have a task at hand. I need to find out for myself. And he didn't make me share it with him. Um, I have to find out for myself if I have anything to do here. So I was just going to play the game. So I go down to Virginia, fly down, and... Um, he picks me up to the airport, and he goes, what are you going to eat? And I said, well, I hadn't really thought about that part. And he goes, well, how about if we make you sandwiches, put it in a cooler, and leave it outside the door? I thought, thank you. That would be beautiful. I didn't even have to think of it. Like, they were already concerned, you know, thinking. So that's what happened. I got myself three four-by-eight pieces of plywood, supported it with three pieces of wood, because I knew I was going to get it wet, um, burnt my own charcoal, that night and harvested my own chalk off a creek bed but added it to latex white paint so I got it thick and gooey um, and then I listened to the King James version of the Bible from tape one <laughs> and as I got through probably 15 or 20 minutes I'm like and I've already have been indulgent in spirituality and religions and structures and theology for a long time for a few years anyway. And what I found was um, I needed the Torah. I needed the Bible, not the New Testament. I was like, there's too much I'm missing. I want Abraham. I want to see some Noah's Ark stuff. I, I need the, the big guns. And I am no, no, no. Um, it was 
the New Testament. That's all I had. So, but I had it on tape. The first one that I found in my my father's book collection, and it was I played it on the Panasonic flip top. <laughs> I had to flip those babies over. A B, um, one through twenty six. The uh, what I found was the first author, the first reader was devastatingly terrible. I was like, oh no, I I wanted someone just to read to me. And this person was trying to sell it. I mean, she, I was gonna, there was gonna be, conversion was the goal from the get go and I just click off, put the next one in and it was what I wanted. I was like, thank God, thank God. Um, so I started listening to it and at the end of listening to it, it was Friday night, Sunday morning, Saturday night, about two o'clock. I said, okay, that's it. And I'd already gone back and listened to a few things over just to see if I could catch nuances. Something mystical, but it was word for word. And what I realized was none of the words were talking about what I knew was in this game. So it was to me code, metaphors, analogies, um, parables. And that was important because I realized the words were not talking about what they were saying. That was the key. So I said, maybe it's truth. So I wrote T-R-U-T-H, big. And it was funny because I was designing t-shirts at the time, and that is a t-shirt layout for a mock-up. You see it? Oh, I do see it. Yep. The collar? So being already no sleeping and peeking out and leaving Manhattan on a you know, busy day and going to the Virginia, I'm buzzing, okay? What I see is there's a neckline where the crucifixion is. Well, who's trying to persecute them? Who's trying to die? I'm trying to die because <laughs> I'm trying to reborn, be reborn into something more than this kind of lackadaisical approach I was taking towards what I thought was art. So I, I did a, a self-persecution there. So that was the beginning of a messiah complex real quick. And, um, and I'm delusional and I'm not sleeping and I'm just, I'm whacked. But then I, I saw it and I go, oh, no, 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 that's too self-indulgent. And there's already famous painters. Jenny Holzer, Barbara Kruger, women in New York are doing words and terminology, phrases that are mind-blowing. They're right on, they're zen and right on the spot. And no one's going to do any better. You're, you're going to you're gonna try to challenge that and do a clever one on your own. But you're just, there's the master and you're just trying to steal the light. So I eliminated it. And realized that the word at that t- the, um, the the Bible at that time was called the Word, and they used that or the book. It was the Word first and then the book, and they used that as a promotional gig to try to be cool, you know, kind of getting the new vibe in there, getting the new word. recruits, yeah, you know, propaganda type stuff. It was a, <laughs> advertising in a really elegant way with something that you're not. I'm pretty sure you're not supposed to mess with. Either you get it and you go for it, or Propaganda. Oh, really? Um, and what I realized was what I was listening to, and ironically, they called it the Word, but the Word, if it's God or salvation, it's depicted in words. So they're using a singularity when it's actually plural. So I wrote W O R D S, W O R D S, W O R D S, W O R D S. It stopped and walked all the way back and read it again. And I was, this is my fidgetiness. I didn't like the walking back part, doing nothing. So I just flipped the charcoal in my other hand and wrote it backwards. 
And now I'm like an IBM speedball processor. Zip. I'm like, I'm in. Everything's technological. So I am better than technology. Technology can't do this. It, it, you can do it first, and then someone can design it to do that. But it's first. I'm first. It follows, you know, being a human being. So I did it. I wrote it and washed it off, wrote it, did it in white, wrote it off, washed it off, washed it off, sat back to smoke a cigarette. And then oddly enough, I didn't see the word words anymore. I saw so right there. This is the painting. So I wrote so, or I saw the word so, and then I looked back up here and I saw or. And then the game began. I saw O, just the simple letter O, but it was the word O. And then I saw woe, and I'd been reading enough religion where woe was a profound, um, like woe, take heed. And then I saw or, and then I saw war, and war is a childish contribution to advanced society where that's an old, you, you, really, you can't use your wizardry of being a sophisticated human being, you're going to conclude war. But war was okay, as a child spelled it, but then I saw swore, and then sword, and then I go, get out, and sword. So now, in a word that means nothing, I've got every word that's necessary for a war. Indifference, so. Oh, whoa, the observation of what you just owed at. So you got oh, whoa, or, so. So or is the alternative, so is the indifference. Um, then I have swore, which is the allegiance that you would have to take in order to have an opposition. So that's a difference. And in order to signify your difference and protect that, you have to arm yourself. So that's a sword. And the only way that a sword is going to show any bearing on the integrity of what you swore to is if you defend it. And that's with swords. So, I go, so this is an epiphany, okay? Something that meant nothing gave me everything without me switching the letters around. Because that's just clever if you switch. But I decided I'm, I'm a, that's my minimalist and depriving. I like depriving myself of trickery. So I just go straight in. When I sat back, I saw the SOS. And I just said, okay, either I'm tripping out or I just had an insight. I would like to think it was rather big and epic, and it was to me. I couldn't grasp anything other than that. So I said, okay, okay, that's, that's pretty hairy stuff, man. I mean, I was like buzzing. And, Talking about it's weird. Maybe hearing about it, you might get a little bit of a feel for it. But the moment when it was happening, plus being a person searching for something, what to paint, I found out that there was no picture in this. But I had just figured out a concept that was shocking. So I wrote the word here on the next board. So H-E-R-E. And I thought, well, you know, here is where. So I wrote W-H-E-R-E, W-H-E-R-E. So the trip that came out with this one was, I had her, he, and we. And I'm like, okay, that's even more ironic that I've got these 
words that are coming up unintended when I'm just trying to ask myself some rather profound questions. You know, where are we? We're here. Who's here? We are here. Who's we? He and her. Um, that was, the coincidence was too strong for me and I, I wasn't really able to handle it. It was too much, too fast, and it was two for two. So I decided to go and do another painting. And um, so I've got my three boards. So we're going to walk into this next chamber. Oh, yes, I forgot to press This is my last three years of work. So the game's changed. There's the painting. actually flew today. So I've decided to remove the words. It's too much game and I'm getting too stuck and I really am getting rather delusioned thinking I've learned something mystical about words. So what I did was I just annihilated, I just started writing. I write, started writing about those two paintings in there. Like, if, if this is what I think it is, something should happen. You know, something's gonna happen. I might not know it now, but I, think, I feel that I've gotten into something but I don't want to get into this clever word game. It'll get, it's almost like a t-shirt design, too clever. So um, I decided to annihilate the ability to read anything, but write the most important things I could. And the most important things I was thinking about were religion, because I felt that that was the strongest catalyst to humanity today. Not religion per se, but systems of commitment, systems of faith, systems of belief. Um, and that's... The game started, those three paintings are 1988 in the summer. That fall, I'm gonna start working for the painter George Kondo. I'm gonna retire, 27, and just commit myself to taking a break. But the day after I retired, I was asked over for a dinner, and ironically enough, Matt, you, look, you are the twin of him right now. The hair, the beard, you're Derek Calcliffe, you know, in New York. So I go, I go over to his house for a cocktail dinner, but it's, nobody's there. So Derek, what's up, where's everybody at? And he's like, Scott, you know what, I'm going to stop working for this painter I work for. I want you to meet him. And here he is, and in comes George Condo. So George talks to me for a little bit. We find out the next day, you know, we have a little bit in common for just our enthusiasm for painting. But he's in the game. I'm just going to be his assistant. But at least there was enough commonality for him to say, do you want to work for me? So the next day we meet for breakfast. He tells me that he used to work in Andrew Warhol's factory. He was a diamond duster. And uh, that was kind of cool. And he's in the game. He, he knows the painters of the day, what's going on. He's talking freely about Keith Haring being a friend, Jean-Michel Basquiat being a friend, um, knows Jeff Koons, Julian Schnabel, just had the biggest show at the Whitney where he told him to clean out all their carpet. Um, you don't do that, but he got away with it. And um, the 80s was in vogue. I mean, it was everything we know typically about the commercialization of art today and the money that people want from it is a, an 80s birth time. And I'm put right in it and I don't know it. But I've already got my language. But to work for a painter with the caliber of George, I stopped painting. 
I painted a little bit because I was a, thought I was a painter, but I wasn't qualified for what these guys were up to. I mean, they're $30,000 already, $220,000, and I'm lucky if I'm getting $700 or $2,000 for a painting. And these guys are just in the, and, and they're known, they're in art magazines that you're reading in the city. And it's all, it's like the New York Times of art magazine, you know, Art News and Art America. So what I did was I basically just kind of gave up painting and decided to start writing. But I'm not a writer. I have no punctuation skills. I can talk fine and give emphasis and that. But when it comes to writing, I am one and one on king. I can do a whole page, commas, maybe a period, inappropriate. Um, but it ended up playing into this whole thing. You know, later when I stopped working for him and that whole thing. So at that point, the words are done, and now I'm going to start cannibalizing my paintings. I'm seeing that this is cool and clever, but Jackson Pollock is already doing drips. So or he's, he's passed away, of course. But the abstract expressionists were so powerful with what they were doing that um, I, I couldn't beat them. I mean, they were too known, and I felt like I was really just walking in their footsteps, and I, not really... I wasn't aware of introducing or contributing to art, but I certainly want, knew I wanted to make an honorable picture. And I wasn't sure if these were honorable, but I knew they were authentic, I knew they were genuine. But what I started seeing was, almost like that doodling idea again, I started noticing these spaces in here that the letters were creating. Once they disappeared as far as carrying a message, I started being very intrigued about this stuff. So I'm gonna drag you, bring that little letter, that was on that board and I said this will be a painting in the other room. That's it right there. That's the first painting of this series and it was at the spice shop um, in the Oregon district and this started the game for this whole vineyard painting. So the most advanced form of this is this. So now I'm not making illusions anymore. They're purely tactile. I mean, I am in, you know, the surface game at this point. These are all, this is all negative space. And I played a really cool game with this one. I, I thought, I am, when it was black and white, the holes were black, the painting was white, it looked really elegant. But I wasn't, I knew I wasn't done and I couldn't freeze the painting because I had a show I was putting up. Um, what I ended up doing was, I took this shape right here and flipped it into a, a macro. Do you see it? This stuff here is these shapes here. It's the gray shapes. You might have to step back. I'll, I'll point it out. See this shape right here? Mm -hmm. That's that shape right there. Oh. So I've cannib I cannibalized my own work. So I flipped it and painted it bigger. And so now I got a motif, right? So I painted the brand, the, so I put gray on the whole painting, depicted this by not painting this. So this is the original gray. That's, there's no original white on the painting. This was added later. So this is what I painted was the dark area. This is all charcoal from a tornado that hit Wright State and Wright Pat three years ago. 
so I was outside collecting rain. I collect, I harvest my own water. That's what all those bottles are out there. They're all dated. I have hundreds of them. Um, important atmospheric precipitation. So first snow of the year, hail, frozen fog, birthdays, you know, weddings, family. I harvest the closest waters to that. The terrible shooting that happened in the Oregon district, I have the first water after that. So the first rain I'm harvesting in homage to that. But the particular story for this charcoal, and I have the rain from the night of the tornado, of tornadoes that came through, I was outside writing about how beautiful the lightning was. My God, it's even with this canopy, it's so cool, it's like being one of those electrical balls and stuff. And I was like, the sirens go off. Um, and I'm collecting my rain in it. So I have, my best rain is collected in lightning storms. My wife doesn't like it, but she's not gonna, she knows she's not gonna get me inside. So I'm like, and I have to get wet. So what I did was I was outside burning a fire for my first charcoal in the lightning storm, because I thought that was pretty cool. You know, can I get a fire in the rain? So I had the fire going and then the alarm went off. The siren. My wife told me there's a tornado sighted. I look up and I go, this is the cloud bank that is feeding off that tornado or feeding the tornado. Pull up a catalpa branch, pull it down, water cascaded, put out my fire. I had charcoal and that's what these are all made with. That's cool. <laughs> um, when I tell it out loud, it becomes kind of a novel story with a trick little medium type thing, but it's purely self-indulgent. It never it was never meant to be shared, but now it's kind of like wildfire. So this is all rubbed charcoal, wet. Grind it in, there's no tactile feeling. It's just satiny smooth. So once I did this, I looked back, and being that dude water that I am, I'm like, you know what? It looks kind of cool. The shapes look too apparent. You know, kind of like this and that. They were just too stark for me. With this larger painting and this one. So what I did was I go, you know what? There's a little game, paint by number. I'm going to paint everything white that isn't touching the gray, the light gray. And I did it, and it set up the perfect compositional motif. Now, I wish I was in control of that, but I'm just playing formulas. And the outcome in the abstraction is that eloquent. Do you, is it captivating? <laughs> and the only one that isn't is that one right there. <laughs> That's what I was looking at. And do you know why I did that? The Hopi Indians, that any sign of perfection being portrayed um, is only what the divine is capable of doing. And you have to create a flaw in perfection to show your humanity. So that's my homage to the Hopi Indian. Life flow. Isn't it cool that in your Not It's like a sore thumb, you know, or something else sore. Um, but that's, so that's the impetus where all of this stuff comes from. So I don't like line quality as I was, I was speaking to somebody else today about line quality. I think artists can do really nice line work because I learned it in school. I just appreciate it. So what I do is I paint a thick black line and I pour my paint in here to create line quality. So I'm not doing the line, the paint, and I think that is pretty groovy, but this is all text. So I write on the whole board, do the writing and paint, and then I just select the negative spaces. In real time, I don't sit there and map it out or formulate it or anything. 
and this is one without any text. The text is gone. You know, it's not even it's eliminated with the white paint. And so I play back and forth with this whole gig. I love shadows, so I thought I'd do this one with by rubbing the pigment on top as non-shapes, so I get this kind of... That's my Leonardo da Vinci in full play. That's Leo in full play. So I, I always bow to, the, to them, you know. Um, it would be ridiculous. I'm not, I don't have conceit available to, for my convenience or any type of self-empowerment. My ego can't stand any longer than the thought of keeping it because I can't see myself and, in, or in, and envision myself as anything other than just this guy talking to two wonderful people. You know, so I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and I'm not sorry, it's just pleasantry. Because um, I'm in, it's a gig. <laughs> but I like that kind of dappled light type stuff. And I have, uh, some of my original ideas come from dappled light from childhood. I used to see light come through the trees under the ground, and at one point I just thought it was cool, and I picked up some rocks and just put them on those lights. And then I went to go get some more stones, and I came back, and I know the stones didn't move, but the, something moved because the light wasn't on them anymore. And that was my first realization that the earth was turning. You know, not the sun. I knew the sun, but no. Um, I had a dream when I was four years old that I knocked the earth off its axis. <laughs> That wasn't a good day. And it was because it was a pin. I saw this beautiful obsidian pin coming up in this cave that I was in. It was like a temple. And it was just a raisin, just a polished, perfect thing. And when I got up to it, I heard these voices. It was the terrible you know, age of a child when you're not supposed to touch anything. So it says, you know, don't touch that. Mm. Just kept hearing it. Don't touch that. Don't touch that. Well, I touched it. <laughs> So when I touched it, I didn't realize that there was also another curve coming down in another needle touching that. And when I touched it, it just did just that. But I knew I could not, I saw the significance of what that point came from. No, no getting it back. You know, you touched it. And that has plagued me my whole life. That that simple movement of curiosity, um, has now forever set the earth in a compromised axis spin. But, it, but if I was on the earth and that was the earth, then what could, you know what I mean? It's just those unanswerable questions of a light dream for a little four-year-old kid. <laughs> but in turn, that's what sets the play up for this stuff. So I'm, I'm going for something epic, but I don't have the goal of anything epic. But I am trying to paint big things. Did you know Brendan? From SAA? Last name? Shh. S H S C H Schindler. I want to say Schindler, but I don't think that's it. And I don't know if I'm going to have it. Um, forgive me, we're going to go for a little quick share. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, mm. nope, I just have Brendan. I'm going to say Schindler or Schindlist but not to be confused with Schindler's List. <clears throat> he had a, an opportunity. He came to me after the, this show. This show is this painting, this painting, this painting, and a series of paintings with just these words on it, <clears throat> which I really think are quite lovely. They're kind of like kinetic events. 
Um, you can stop to see if there's letters, but I'm trying to deprive you of even wanting to see the letter. But I'm not trying to eliminate it, but I always draw a very, it's a Helvetica capital letter. I mean, I never do script. I never, I don't want any flavor. I want, if you're worth, I'm such a fundamentalist on, on purity that if you can't write the most mundane thing and make it be, become the most beautiful thing, then you just, that's your, that's your gig. So I have to use the most plain thing to try to use the most, hopefully a, a profound event. I'm not trying to be that clever or that important, but it's me painting and I want something to happen while I'm painting. The viewers don't interest me. I already know I'm a human being and the viewers that are like me will see it. The 90 other percent of people will just think like, oh, it's just letters or oh, it's just stuff, but that's okay. Um, not to judge, just perhaps to assess. So they gave me the opportunity to do the show, and I did a whole bunch of new paintings that had all this running technique on it. Really kind of just raw, raw. And I finished the, the, the body of work, and it was October. And I thought, they're going to think it's goosebumps. Oh, no. Now I'm so freaked out about people thinking something that isn't. I just threw the show. I stopped the show. I shut it down. Didn't tell them that, but I took another month to paint, and I painted this body of work. So this body of work is, I thought, perfect for the thing. It's a homage to Basquiat. It's the slatted boards that he did his painting on that's on the back of his New York Times cover, um, insert article. And I just thought, you know what? I'm, I talk about Jean-Michel a lot as a formidable painter. I think I'm just going to commit a show to him but not do any of his paintings. So what I figured, I'd been studying children's work for years at this point, um, and I realized that a child's work is underestimated. Its authenticity is as proficient and not to be manipulated or underestimated to any degree. It's as authentic as a, as a, um, a Rembrandt etching. And if you think that a kid's drawing is easy and you draw the way you think a kid looks or draws, you've just done a misservice or a disservice to a child. So what I found was I was studying Again, I, I, I just like imagery no matter what. I was studying pictographs, early cave drawings and early drawings, and what I found was, ironically, children's drawings look a lot like their drawings. And I thought, well, you know, shamans aren't necessarily artists. They're just conveyors of information. But they've had psychotic snaps. So they've disassociated from our common sense of existence. They've slipped off the path, let's say. But the path they slipped off of is our contemporary realm of understanding things as we see them. They were probably the first ones to notice that when you got an injury, you could be a barometer. So if they forecasted that you do a dance for rain three days before rain comes, they know the rain's coming because it comes every time when they get this sore elbow. So they have you do a dance, and lo and behold, rain comes. You're pretty frickin' powerful at that point because you've prophesied rain. So I mean, so what I felt was important was that they had lost their ego through a psychotic episode, and children haven't formed their ego. So I decided to call this the pre-post-ego body of work. Because I, who don't have an ego, get to be the ego painter, painting that which has no ego. 
<laughs> so that was a nice little conceptual formula. I wish I was that clever at the beginning, but it ended up coming in while I was working on the work like, wait a minute, this is what's in. And this is a painting of a silhouette of me, which is the closest I'm going to get to a self-portrait with any type of seriousness. But the writing on the whole painting that only appears in the silhouette is the allegory of the cave by Plato. With the shadows and the whole... So I am what I think I am. And this thought is painting the reality that I have no control of. I mean, so that was, that's probably about as clever and conceptual as I'll get. I'm pretty convinced I'm a conceptual painter, but I love painting. So I'd like to be a painter, but my thoughts seem to be pretty um, not encompassed with just the pictures that I'm painting. There, there seems to be a lot of formulation going on there. So that's what that was. Isn't that cool, though? I mean, I, really, I thought that was kind of, you know. And you don't get to do it twice. You only get it once. Mm -hmm. So it's like a one-time shot. And it's like, oh, man, I wish I would have. But what was happening, I was projecting something. And I stood up to the painting to look at what I was. I don't remember. I think it was this. I was, this is Stonehenge. But from a bird's eye view at an angle. And I decided to not depict it as everything that people identify with Stonehenge. But I decided to go straight to the energy of the mind thinking of Stonehenge. So I have two radial perspectives. One is for the outside ring, and then I moved it for the inside ring. And I did my running technique that I created in that other one, and I made everything emanate out. And I did probably one of my most important paintings of an actual existing object. So it ended up being that. And you almost were deprived of which was painted and how it was painted. But when I walked up, because I was projecting this drawing onto the board, my shadow was like 16 feet tall. And I just did there like, that's so totally cool. So I called up one of my assistants and I said, to photograph this, but I was in the picture. And I didn't want that. So what I did was we projected again, photographed, and then I drew it on a piece of film and then projected the film without me in it. And that's the shadow, and that's how I ended up getting that. So if you see the card of the show that never was, because the gallery closed. And my building director saw the paintings. He goes, like, what are these paintings about? And I go, I painted for a show, and the damn thing, the gallery closed. And he goes, well, what are you going to do with them? And I was like, nothing. I'm ready to do my other work, because I don't paint images. And um, he goes, well, we'll show them. You know, and so they put the show together. And he goes, what do you want the title to be? And I go, well, it's, it's the show that never was. And he goes, that's so beautiful. And I go, that was, I don't think anybody's ever had it. Yeah. So it was titled The Show That Never Was. Um, homage to Basquiat, dealing with the quality of imagery made by children and shaman. And then from that point on. These images are from East Liverpool, Ohio. Was, which is up in perhaps your neck of the woods, Zanesville North. It's one of the old pottery towns with the big cone, those beehive things. I've only seen pictures. 1897, the river was down and an Indian gentleman or an eldersman of, of the time walked up to a, an archaeologist or a geologist, I don't remember which one it was, and said, there's stones that have pictures and took them over to the riverbank, and they were exposed. These are on that. The end one, 
and this one, and there is another painting, but it's not here, but this, these are the notes. I've already done a bunch of small ones. Um, I thought, wow, that's really quite amazing. When I had done the drawing for this one, I left out these two little figures. They're not here, they're over on the stone somewhere else. But once I realized I was doing the children's, because they looked too much, too childish, and too authentically like children, I wasn't gonna be able to get away with it. Um, once I knew I was gonna do the children's show, I brought them back in and put them in. But here's the trip. They're actually the conveyor of what the story is. These little triangles on their head are one half of that. And they're the bearers of the knowledge of what this thing is. And what this thing is, is a horned figure with protrusions and an x-ray. Well, I thought x-ray imagery was only aboriginal from Australia in their dream pictures, their dream paintings. So this was a mind blower to me. And then what I figured out was, this is a superior being. These are the information of the superior being. But that's the information that can't be shared by one human. And that solidified male and female, which means humanity is the wisdom of the woman with what we spoke of. Mm -hmm. And the male is the obedient one to understand what she's telling him to do has to be followed. So no ego again, just pure commitment to protecting during menstruation because that's a scent and that means protection from wild animals. The vulnerability of pregnancy and the birth of a, a baby is something that's gonna bring those predators in and they, they want to come in. So we are on a pure protection mode, you know? Um, the way that we're working in life right now sets it differently in professions and money and necessity, but we only have one role, and it's to keep the, this alive from danger. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty smooth, you know, sweet and smooth. Um, so these are the, the shared conveyance. Not one can share it. It has to be both. Are you familiar with Babylonian imagery and those people carrying those little packages in South America? ancient alien type conspiracy type stuff and just the people that believe in it. They're showing images where these, these images are carrying these baskets. They all are, all through history. The Mesoamericans in, in Mexico and Colombia and South America, well, this, they're doing the same thing in Babylonia. What, what's, what's that all about? Why are these people carrying this? Why is this in their hands? And it's the information that's independent of the life. That's my theory of it. It's not mystical, it's not aliens giving us information. Because the real alien, the reason why they're pointing out there is because the wisdom of those stars is this is what's interpreting that. Mm -hmm. This is where the aliens are. This is where the gods are. That's just symbolically that it's up. It's higher in our state of attention, my thing. Um, so I just think it's beautiful that they've got pyramids on their head. But they're not pyramids, they're one half of that. And that's pretty close to an um, infinity symbol, mm -hmm. but geometric. So pure symbols um, perhaps are depicted certain ways. And then to have that head down there with nothing in it, kind of is almost the aspiration, the, the potential of a human. 
but I don't know that. So there's no pictures of these stones. There's only drawings and the pictures taken at the time, all the plates are lost. 1967, they did something up there to where I think they created a, um, what's it called? A reservoir where they had to dam up the water. The stones got exposed again. They took photographs, had everybody standing around. All those prints are missing. There's no pictures of this. Only the original 1897 drawings that I found. It's weird. Isn't that cool? So even that's a mind blower. Um, so that's just me playing a homage. And I figure why go out to Africa or why go to the Southwest to get those pictographs when I'm from Ohio. And I remembered a story once when I was in Europe. Somebody said I was an American. And I realized real quick that their idea of an American is what they read. And I had no, no interest in supporting that. And they said, well, where in America are you from? I go, my feet are planted in Dayton, Ohio, but I hold the world confidently in my arms. So uh, I'm good to go, good to go. I think I've said that three times. I'm good to go, who the hell knows? Um, <laughs> so this is my neighbor's fence. That was pretty cool when she came to see that. She's in her 80s, lovely lady. She was mind blown that I was making paintings out of her fence that I tore down. <laughs> um, but that's, that's the end of the body, but it's not the whole gig. But I, we could just, it goes, it just, it would invert and then expand again in there if we did it again. So you just have to let me know what you want to do. <laughs> you want to take a nap or something? What? Do you want to go take a nap? Like, are you tired? Of course, I'm tired. She's beyond. She's like in the she's second, second air, second wind, third wind. <laughs> I'm not transcended tiredness. I'm actually sleeping with my eyes open. You've been so captivating to me. That was so kind that you just walked around following me so much. Uh, yeah, we can call it on that. We can. Uh, we can also reboot and do anything or stuff that you have. I'd be happy to drive up to you. Oh, yeah? I would say this was quite... I had no idea you guys were traveling this far. Oh, I would have made it a little bit more... Oh, no, um, it's perfect. This, uh, really. And, and I think this is all going to be... The environment's changing very quickly within the week. You know, classes start up. They start doing things. We do have a first Friday that's coming up this Friday, which I'm trying to keep them sustained, not... But Saturday's the first day of classes. So I'm like, please just give me one. I'll set the whole place up. I'll stay mm -hmm. till four in the morning. Let me please just have this one more opportunity for a public day. But it's getting attention. The attention here is surprising to me. Um, I, I really don't think anybody's seen a, such a considerable body of work that covers a span that includes a recovery. So this is me. I, I wept in my last show. Not this. This isn't a show to me. This is just an exhibition. My last show was these colored paintings in the corner, these real strong graphic ones on either side of the black painting, mm -hmm. um, and these two right here. Those two, the black on either side, and those three and four, those are my newest paintings. And I realized I'm not teaching myself how to paint anymore. I've got the, and these. So these taught me that I've actually developed a new venue for painting that has nothing to do with learning anymore. And I wept when I figured that out. My assistant was like, you know, are you okay? And my sister was like, what's the matter? And I go, I just realized I'm done learning how to paint. My 16 years is up. So I'm the day before the accident now. <laughs> but I have 16 years of studying ways that I never would have ever considered 
and now I'm ready to paint. So that's why I'm three years behind, because my notes, you, if I was to open my notebooks, you'd get the gig, because that's the real art is my notebooks. This is just stuff, these are exercises. So these are, I mean, just picture those as big as that wall right there. And who knows what that kind of material at that scale is gonna be you know, involving. But that's, that's where we're at right now. Scale jump, but I don't know about the practicality. I'm just gonna work on shooting everything and we can close out of this one. I'm good. Sounds great. And I'm going to, do you want something to drink? I'm okay, I still have my drink up front. It's melted, you need a new one. Is it? Okay? If you want, okay, if you want the slush. <laughs>